You're listening to Positivity Strategist. Welcome to our third season, where I'll be focusing on leaders and leading in an appreciative and positive way across a range of industries and professions. What does it mean? How do they do it? What results do they achieve for their people, their organizations, and their own careers? How do they inspire? This is Robin Stratton Burkessel, host of the show. First, I want to express my gratitude to those of you who are listening and sharing how you're finding value in this podcast and enjoying this new season on the topic of appreciative leading. I love hearing from you. So here's just a quick example. One of my listeners, Dawn Dole, Executive Director of the Taos Institute, emailed me suggesting my guest today, and I was absolutely thrilled. So if any of you have people that you know of and you think might be a wonderful contributor to this season, please be in touch with me. And I'd also like to take this opportunity to remind you that if you've been enjoying this show and getting value from the stories and the insights and the wise nuggets that my guests are sharing, and you'd like to see the show continue and perhaps grow and improve in production quality, have you considered that you might be able to make this happen? What if you were to become a patron or a sponsor? That's now possible. And you can find out what that entails and how we can each benefit from such a relationship by visiting my Patreon page. And that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And you can access that page from the show notes page for this episode, which you'll hear about soon, or you can go directly to my own Patreon page and let me give you that URL. It's positivitystrategist.com slash Patreon. And I'm just so grateful already for my two pioneering patrons. And they are Johannes from Germany and Jupp from the Netherlands. And now let me introduce my guest for this week's show. My esteemed guest today is Professor Sheila McNamee, and Sheila is co-founder and vice president of the Taos Institute. We might say a little bit more about the Taos Institute later. And Sheila is also professor of communication at the University of New Hampshire and has held visiting professorships in a number of countries in Europe and South America. Sheila's also an author and co-author of many books and articles, and some of which you'll be able to find on our show notes page for this episode. And let me give that to you now. The show notes page is positivitystrategist.com slash PS115. Yes, this is episode 115. So Sheila, let me welcome you. I'm so delighted to have you on the show. Thank you, Robin. It's so lovely to be here, and I I really am honored to be able to be part of this uh, important conversation. So thank you for inviting me, and I have to thank Don Dole as well for uh, making the suggestion to you. I think there's no better time to be talking about appreciative leading. Yes, so I'm delighted that Dawn made that connection and you followed up because as you said to me in our email correspondence, there's so much to be learned from thinking and talking about and practicing leading in ways that differ from our traditional leadership stances. Um, And as you know, um, Sheila, you know, this has been the focus of this season and my guests are people who've 
who I perceive um, that they are not leading in the traditional way. Mm-hmm. And over these last weeks, they've been sharing their perspectives and innovations and processes and results. So I would love for um, for you to perhaps begin by sharing with us something of what you're thinking and learning and practicing on this topic today. You know, what would you, how would you like to start? Such a big topic. <laughs> it, it's a huge topic. <laughs> there are so many, so many different starting places, but maybe, um, maybe it would be good for me to talk about how, how I kind of find my way here to this, to thinking about leading as a relational process, not as an individual's characteristics or traits and appreciative leading in particular. So, you know, when people ask me how I've come to do the work I do, I always go back to my childhood and I think about what is the common thread that I can pull through my life. And that common thread has always been being in the middle so uh, in my family, being in the middle and being sort of the peacekeeper between differences um, in my friendship groups growing up, being in the middle, you know, very different groups of friends that would not connect with each other. But somehow I always found myself in the middle of, of those and making connections. Um, even in my graduate work, I obviously have a PhD in communication since that's what I'm a professor of, but I was writing my dissertation on therapeutic process. So I was in the middle of two different disciplines. So uh, then, you know, becoming head of my department in the middle of different political battles and ideological battles uh, around professional life and so forth. So for me, when I think about leading you know, not only do I think of it as a process, not something a person does or has, but I also think of it as really attending to what we can't avoid in our world today, which is complexity and difference. So that for me, that notion of being in the middle to somehow find a way to allow people with very different beliefs and values and sometimes not so different, but different enough to make it um, create a problem or a challenge um, to somehow relational leading and appreciative leading to me are somehow being able to create that space where people can come to appreciate difference rather than fight against it or judge it or assess it. So that's sort of, you know, a, a quick little bit of how, why these ideas are important to me and how I come to them. Mm, being in the middle. So what did you do in the middle? I mean, how did you how did you work around relationships and situations, whether they be ideological or between family members? You know, what was it that you found that you had had some um, some way of just being there for yourself and for others? Good question. I think for me, the notion has always been that when when there's difference, when somebody has a very different point of view, I always start, even as a child, just presuming that it must make sense to that person or that group of people. And so it's not far, it was never far for me to say, my position makes sense to me. 
these other people have this, they're sort of in the same space as I am. They, their position makes sense to them and they're passionate about what they believe. And I'm passionate about what I believe. So automatically there's a point of connection for us instead of a point of division. And so if I, if I can position myself that way to say, this is something we have in common that we really, really believe what we believe. So how can we become curious about that? And that to me really is the appreciative approach to, to not immediately go to our knee jerk response of judging, evaluating, critiquing, uh, trying to oppress and win the day, but rather to, to just be curious, like, wow, how could it be that you could have such a different idea about how we should do this or about what, what's right or what's wrong? Um, and I think that that, so for me, leading is, is very much attached to issues of complexity and diversity. And also we, when we're talking about diversity and complexity, we're talking about the potential for conflict. So all of those things kind of come together when we think about leading processes. And the most important thing I think is to ask, how can we create a space, a conversational space where different kinds of conversations can transpire? Uh, Not the same old me against you sort of conversation, but the kind of space that invites very different ideas into the into the mix and from that we can together appreciate our differences and maybe be changed by each other as well and open ourselves to a more collaborative way of going on together Hmm. so Sheila do you think that we're wired for this um you know if you I'm still thinking back to your your story about being in the middle as a child, and I'm thinking, this sounds, you were such a mature child. (laughs) (laughs) I doubt doubt my family members would say that, but yeah. So I'm just wondering, you know, were you surrounded by people who um, were like this, or do you think you're pre, you know, we get predisposed to this, like we have a high intuition or high social emotional intelligence, or we're a systems thinker or growth mindset, you know, any of these kinds of frameworks that we, we overlay on who we are. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious about all of that. Yeah, well, for me, who we are isn't anything that's hardwired or anything that's sort of intuitive or just happens, but it, who we are is an emergent byproduct of who we're with and how we talk. And mm. so, um, you know, it is interesting to think familiarly, you know, for me, what was it that my way of being in the world emerged from those family relations. I I come from a big family and being smack dab in the middle, I think, you know, I, I was looking up at my older siblings, you know, with admiration of what they thought and looking down at my younger siblings with curiosity about their learning, just learning things. And I think um, maybe also the reason uh, that I, you know, found myself comfortably in the middle is because 
maybe I was conflict avoidant, you know, that I, <laughs> I didn't want to go down that road. And so, um, I would search for some sensibility in, in all perspectives. And, you know, that's a, that's hard to do. I mean, right now in the contemporary political climate that we live in, not just in, in the U S but globally, it's very hard to, um, you know, quell those really strong feelings about who's right and who's wrong, who's honest and who's dishonest and try to, you know, get inside the other story to grant it some coherence. But one thing that I I have to say here is when we grant a different perspective coherence, that doesn't mean we're saying it's okay or it's right. So, but one of the things about working with people and trying to create more collaborative, coordinated ways of working together and living together is that if we only critique people and tell them what they're doing is wrong, we invite the response of self-defense. But Mm. if we enter into a conversation with just curiosity, like, gee, you know, I, I just don't see the world that way. How, how did you come to this? Well, you know, people like to share their story. They like to share how they came to certain ways of being. And if you've asked another person that, they're likely to ask you the same. And before you know it, you know, from a constructionist perspective, you are in relation, you are in conversation, and the possibility to create new meaning and new understanding together is there. Um, so I think... You know, the the colloquial way of saying it is you um, can attract more bees with honey. And so, you know, my propensity is not to critique. But, you know, you you all should know that I silently do a lot of critiquing, as I think many of us do. But that Mm. sort of that sort of gets me up and running to like, okay, you know, engage in this self-reflexive questioning of myself, you know, is how can I be so critical of that? Do I know enough to be critical? Isn't there something more for me to learn here? So perhaps that's another part about appreciative leading is being always open to learning and Mm. always open to being changed yourself. So, you know, a lot of traditional leading or leadership is about changing other people, but, you know, ostensibly the leader remains unchanged but here you know you enter into interactions hoping and anticipating that you will be changed Mm. and so the starting point would be being curious um i'm also hearing you say sheila about being other centered rather than self-centered um And I know from social construction that, you know, we talk about the Mm -hmm. multi-being and the relational being. Could you say something about those terms and how that might fit with being in a role where you are leading and how you might um, show up that way? That's different from, you know, being the person who's the expert or has all the answers or people look to for solutions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, do we have a few hours? (laughs) 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 That's a lot. Um, But but really important stuff. I 
let me start by, I want to talk about multi-being and relational being, but I want to first give a sort of shout out to Ed Sampson, a social psychologist who wrote this wonderful book in 1993 called Celebrating the Other. And he talks about the difference between being monologic and being dialogic. Mm-hmm. And monologic, monologism is when the other is only a prop for us. So um, as a professor, I could say, I don't really care about my students. They just are there to allow me to be a professor and profess. And so you treat the other as an object. Dialogism is, as Samson says, celebrating the other. It's the recognition mm-hmm. that I can't be me without you. And you can't be you without me. And so now we can segue into this notion of relational being. Who we are is not something that we are born with. I mean, we're nobody. We are born into relationships. And so any sense of individuality or specificity that we have of ourselves emerges out of those relationships. So we owe all that we understand ourselves to be to others. You know, without mm-hmm. our family, we can't be a sibling or a child um, or that person in the family, the family clown or the family screw up or whatever. So we, it, it, what, what relational being from a constructionist perspective really is saying is that we turn on its head the tradition of individualism that says, First and foremost, we are all born as um, self-contained individuals. And if I want to understand you, I need to understand everything inside you, how you think, Mm. how you feel, what your personality is, what your likes and dislikes are, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And if I want to understand a relationship from that individualist perspective, I need to understand everything about each individual. And then I kind of add them up together. That's the traditional paradigm. But the constructionist Mm -hmm. perspective says, let's flip that and say we are first and foremost relational beings. I mean, when you think of it, we really are. Sperm Mm -hmm. meets egg relationship, egg and Mm -hmm. womb relationship, infant, you know, born into someone's hands relationship. So if we start from the premise where relational beings and any sense of individuality we have emerges from those relationships. And because we participate in so many different relationships, both, you know, in in real physical contact, but also virtually, you read a novel, you're in relationship with the characters, you watch a movie, you have a relationship, you carry those relationships with you. So who we are is multi-beings, not singular individuals, because we can be so many different things in in by virtue of the many different relationships that we participate in. And this is really significant when we come to talk about leading, because one of my, um, it's something that's very important to me and I find myself saying all the time is we have so many resources for action thanks to the many, many, many different relational communities that we are all part of. And one of the problems when we find ourselves stuck is that we keep 
trying to do what we do in that context with that person or those people in that relationship where what we could actually do given our multi-being is kind of draw from ways of being that are kind of foreign for that relationship, but are very comfortable in others. So use your mother voice with your colleagues. It really makes you softer and caring and can be quite useful. Mm. My feeling is we don't need to teach people how to lead. We need to kind of liberate people to realize that they are multi-beings and that that provides them with enormous resources for acting if they can just grab onto that recognition that, oh, gee, if, if I was talking to my family member right now, I wouldn't at all be talking this way. So could I use that way of talking? Might it change the way this relationship is unfolding right now? Mm -hmm. That is so liberating, just hearing you say that and making it so clear, Sheila, um, is just awesome. And just recognizing that we can call on those, all those parts of us. It also suggests to me, and I've read a little bit about this, this notion that you talk about and have written about of radical presence. Mm -hmm. So my sense is that as you, you know, whether you're in a, um, in a role of leading or whether you're just in relationship, you know, that you have the capacity to call upon all those other stories within yourself and all those prior relationships. And it also means that in order to be of service to others, you need to be very present to who they are so that you can pull forth that part of you. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to relate in the most resonant way. Yes. I, I've been playing around with this idea of radical presence for a while in a lot of my writing. And there's so much entailed in this. So it's the note, the notion for me is to think about really humanizing our practice, whatever Mm -hmm. that practice is. Okay. So, because we don't in the, in the dominant discourse of our culture, which is individualism, You know, if you are a professional, you are an expert and you are expected to demonstrate your expertise in every interaction, you know, within that context. Mm. And as we do that, we become less and less connected to each other and less and less human. So this idea of humanizing uh, is really allowing that multi-being, allowing yourself to be vulnerable to um, act in a way that might step sidestep or step out of completely that expertise role. Um, And in so doing, you really are being attentive to the others. So this idea of radical presence, that's, you know, being really there. It's not just being aware of who the other is because the other is many things, but it's being aware of what we are doing together and what's emerging from that doing. So really being in the moment, there's, to me, there's nothing more important than the interactive moment, like what we are doing right now. And um, I think we don't usually attend so much to to what's happening and unfolding in the moment. But if we do take the stance of radical presence, 
we're constantly, it's a lot of work actually, but it's kind of fun work, I think, um, because you're constantly engaging in this inner dialogue of, you know, if, if I say something to you and you respond in a way that surprises me and maybe disappoints me, instead of thinking there's something wrong with you, my inner dialogue is going to be asking, what, how did I invite that response? How, how are mm. my fingerprints all over what's being constructed here? So I, to simplify this, there are four questions that um, one of my mentors, Barnett Pierce, um, poses. And I think they're the most critical questions that we can ask ourselves all the time. The first is, what are we making together? So instead of like, what are you doing and why are you doing that? <laughs> or what am I doing that's making all this good stuff happen and you're doing all this stuff that's making bad stuff happen? You know, what are we making together? Second question is, how are we making it? In other words, we, we put our focus on what exactly are we doing and how are we responding and being responsive to each other? Third question, who are we becoming mm -hmm. as we do this? You know, and the last question is, how do we make better social worlds? But I have one just small example that I love to use from when my son was little that really gets to this, you know, what are we making together? How are we making it? And who are we becoming? Um, you know, those mornings, family mornings when everything goes wrong and everybody's late and so forth. And we were having one of these mornings. My son was about <laughs> seven years old. And then he remembered that he had forgotten something. And I, you know, I became the quintessential hysterical mother. And he just looked at me and he said, Mama, can we start this conversation over again? Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I thought, you know, <laughs> yes, thank you for that. Because I do not like who I'm becoming here. I do not like mm -hmm. being a hysterical mother you, I'm sure, do not like being a bad boy. So let's let's do a do-over. And I think that's one of the things that, um, from an individualist perspective, we don't allow ourselves the do-overs because it's done. Mm. You've acted. But there's always a chance. If, if we recognize that every action that we take is an invitation to the other, if that's how we see it, it's, it's not a cause-effect, it's an invitation and then we see how the person accepts that in invitation or doesn't accept it or just simply responds to it. If it's not what we wanted or if it's not useful, we can say, you know what? I was trying to invite you into this, but this other thing happened. Could we try again? Or is there something I could do that would make that you know, easier for you? So we invite each other into kind of looking at how we are making something in this moment. Yes, and that is such a, um, such a sense to me of being acutely aware of the responsibility that we have to each other. And, you know, another term, I'm kind of just dropping these terms <laughs> into this conversation because I want you to expand on them. But, you know, this notion of relational responsibility yeah. is another one. Yeah. And maybe, and maybe um, so I don't know if you want to say something there. Shall I just pause and maybe you might want to respond to that? And it, it, perhaps 
you know, the, the, the story with your son is one example, but if we think about it in an organizational context, do you have a story there where this relational responsibility might show up as an appreciative or, um, you know, leading in this appreciative relational way. Yeah, yeah I have too many stories. <laughs> um, yes, and so the notion of radical presence and relational responsibility, those two notions are really so tightly interconnected for me. Uh-huh. But but the relation... So I'm on the right track. Yes, definitely on the right track. <laughs> um, but the relational responsibility book that I wrote, um, when, I, when I was playing with that idea, I was responding to some critiques about... Um, social construction that basically was saying it's unethical, immoral because it's rampant relativism. You just construct the world any way you want. And so mm-hmm. it's irresponsible. So, mm-hmm. so I started playing with this idea of relational responsibility, which to me means being attentive to the process of relating itself. So that's, mm-hmm. and that's what I have just been talking about, like really looking at what are we making together? How are we making that? What are we doing and recognizing our fingerprints all over. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. It's nobody's fault. It's we together are creating this. So it's a, a shift from blame language, cause effect language to this relational language. Um, oh, well, I have sort of a classic story from also uh, from my own work context that mm-hmm. um is a good illustration of this, I think. Um, so I had a colleague. You mean in your teaching role? Well, no, it, when in my being head of the department role. Okay. So Sounds good. in a managerial role, basically. Um, mm-hmm. So I was in that role for nine years. And uh, this was quite a while ago. My son was young at the time and um, very young, as a matter of fact. And I had a colleague who, you know, things happen in, in organizations. And, uh, he just thought everything I did was evil and against him. And so the more he would think that the more I would think I must be guilty of something. And then I would give him like more money for research, more money for travel, more. And, it was just kind of a, it was a very dysfunctional pattern because um, he just had a way of terrorizing me. And I, and I, so anyway, one day I was sitting at my desk and I was actually on the phone with somebody and he came barreling in, like really bursting in and started pounding his fist on the desk and yelling at me. And so of course I had to hang up the phone and in this sort of split second between hanging up the phone and turning to him, I had this inner dialogue. I thought, what would I do if my son spoke to me this way? And this is exactly mm-hmm. what I was talking about before using the resources that you have in other contexts. And so I looked mm-hmm. at him and I said, please sit down and speak to me in a civil tone, you know, just in that tone. And he banged harder on the desk and yelled louder. And so I, a little more forcefully, you know, please sit down and speak to me in a civil tone. And he did. He sat down and I said, what's the problem? And he laid out and I, you know, we discussed it. No, that never happened, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of the conversation, I said, could we make an agreement that both of us from now on will not jump to conclusions about either one's behavior, but we will first come and ask, you know, to be in conversation and question about it. 
but not in an mm-hmm. accusatory way. And he agreed. And from that moment on, this, you know, basically a war that we had been waging with each other for years, completely transformed, completely. So that I think to me, you know, is looking, you know, I was part of creating that too, because the guiltier, the more he accused me, the guiltier I felt. And the, if I felt guilty, I probably looked guilty and then he could accuse me more. <laughs> we were just in this, un, you know, unending pattern. Um, mm. And so I think sometimes it just takes looking, being able to recognize patterns and not just recognize patterns that other people are responsible for, but mm-hmm. seeing your own part and contributing to it and trying mm-hmm. to interrupt it. Yeah. And you call that reflexive dialogue? Yeah. Uh, inner, inner reflexivity, self-reflexivity. And then there's also relational reflexivity where mm-hmm. if you're working with someone, talking with someone, um, you could be the expert. Like, for example, in teaching. Instead mm-hmm. of just teaching, I might I often stop and say, is this a useful conversation for us to have? Is this helping you? Is there another mm-hmm. way we should be talking about this to kind of bring the other in to constructing and collaborating with how we're going to go on together? Um, mm-hmm. So, again, it's I call it call it relational reflexivity because it's a, a way of um questioning our taken for granted certainty about, you know, this is the the right way to be doing this now. Yes. Yeah. So sadly, our time has come to an end and you have shared so much with us. And I just want to kind of tie together some of the, some of the insights that people I've been speaking with um, in prior episodes, Sheila, Mm. And I've been just making sense and meaning out of what you're sharing with us today. And, you know, it's based in theory um, as well as the, the practice too. But people have been saying to me that it's about being open and vulnerable and building the relationships. Mm-hmm. So I think you could check all those boxes, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, also challenging assumptions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really saying, well, you know, you have the opportunity to really inquire and ask others, am I really understanding you correctly or what am I missing here or, mm-hmm. you know, what what would you like to add that? So, you know, so all of this is to me like the practice of appreciative leading and it's about conversation, right? Right, yeah. Um, and being prepared to be changed by the conversation and being open to new possibilities. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I think is also interesting to hold on to is that um, there's a difference between preparing and planning. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can prepare to enter into uh, a, a certain context, a certain conversation, but if you plan, then you're going to do the first thing and then the second thing and then the third thing, and you're not going to be responsive to the other. So what I say is, you know, make a plan and then throw it away the minute you start interacting with someone because you have to improvise where you have to be responsive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just like we did, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't stick to our plan. No, not at all. <laughs> 
And it's, um, you know, as you said to me, one of our prior conversations, it's about being very comfortable with the unfolding of what wants, what wants to emerge. Yeah. I think that too. Sheila, I love the questions that you, the four questions that you shared with us and some of the, the practicalities of this is, it's so valuable. And, um, I just want to thank you for, investing this time with um, with me today and for sharing what you're doing. Um, and let's just say a little bit about the Taos Institute because, you know, you've been associated with it for over 25 years mm-hmm. as a founding member. And would you just like to say something about the Institute and what it seeks to do in the world and what it is doing? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the Taos Institute is a virtual institute that is uh, devoted to uh, spreading the idea of uh, relational, appreciative, and constructionist um, theory and practice uh, in in every and any domain, you know, uh, education, community work, organizations, uh, psychotherapy, healthcare, um, everywhere. And um, we have, yes, we just had our 25th anniversary. We have we offer workshops and conferences. We publish books. We have um, all sorts of downloadable materials and resources for people. We have free books to download, um, as a matter of fact. And uh, we offer a PhD program and a diploma program. And it is a really, really wonderful community of innovative, welcoming and relationally sensitive people. And I feel very, very lucky to um, be part of this community. Mm. Yes, um, I'm also very, I feel very um, fortunate to be an associate and I feel I'm not taking advantage of that to the fullest. So this has been a lovely prompt for me (laughs) to immerse myself a bit more in um, all the beautiful things that you offer. So I just want to remind um, people who are listening, thank you again. And you'll find Uh, some of these resources that Sheila has brought up on the show notes page. And let me just give you that URL again. It's positivitystrategist.com slash PS 115. And so Sheila, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for all that you're doing and what you've shared with us again today. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for inviting me into this really nice conversation. So I really appreciate it. If you have questions or ideas that you'd like to hear discussed on upcoming episodes and possibly participate in our show, go to positivitystrategist.com forward slash podcast where you can submit your ideas or leave me a voicemail. I will respond. And also, if you appreciate this show, I'd love you to share that by leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Also, you can be notified of new episodes by email. Links to all these suggestions are available on positivitystrategist.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening and remember what you focus on grows, so grow towards your best.